Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, today uh, we conclude our five-part preaching series entitled, What Does the Bible Say? What Does the Bible Say? Um, Over the past month or so, we have been examining common cliches that we as Christians say in conversation with friends and family and even with strangers with the assumption uh, that these cliches are rooted in biblical teaching, based on biblical teaching, when that's not necessarily the case. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking to the Bible, and we've been testing these cliches against the teachings of the Bible in order to determine their merit and truth. And as we close out this series, I want to say that I certainly hope that this has been an enjoyable series that has led us to think deeply about our faith, and I also hope that this sermon series will lead to further engagement with Scripture on our part. Well, just to kind of uh, wrap up what we've been talking about, the first week uh, we looked at the popular cliché Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. And we discovered that that cliche simply is not true. Yes, God is sovereign over the universe in an ultimate sense, no question about it. But it's also true that as human beings, God has gifted us with freedom, that we have free will, that we are free to make our own choices. And because of our bent towards sin, our inclination towards sin, we don't always use our free will in ways that are appropriate, God-honoring and life-giving. While God doesn't will everything, God has a will in everything. God doesn't will everything, but God has a will in everything. God can redeem suffering and bring good out of tragedy. And then the second week, uh, we examine the cliche, God helps those who help themselves. This is not from the Bible, it's from the Gospel of Benjamin Franklin. God helps those who help themselves. This cliche, though, does have a sliver of biblical truth in the sense that we're called to pray and work. Uh, The Latin phrase for this is ora et labora. That's your daily dose of Latin. Ora et labora, pray and work, that prayer and faith inspire action. On the other hand, if we're not careful, the cliche, God helps those who help themselves, can cause us to overlook biblical teaching about God's concern for the poor and needy. There are more than 2,000 verses in the Bible that address this, and our responsibility as Christians to care for those who are most vulnerable. This cliche can also make us think that we're self-sufficient when we're not. We're not self-sufficient. We need God's grace to save us. And then the third week, uh, we turn to the cliche, God won't give you more than you can handle. This cliche is actually based on a misreading of Scripture. It's based on a misreading of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, in which the writer, Paul, talks about temptation, not suffering. But not only is the cliche, God won't give you more than you can handle, based on a misreading of Scripture, it's also based on a misunderstanding of God. It assumes that God is the author of our suffering. This cliche is also inappropriate, because 
The fact of the matter is, we do find ourselves from time to time in situations that we can't handle. That's true for all of us. From time to time, we find ourselves in overwhelming situations that we can't handle. God's promise to us is that he's going to lead us through these trying times, especially through the help and the support of other people. And then last week, uh, we explored the cliche, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. This cliche has to do with the Bible. And as I shared last week, it's an overly simplistic way of looking at the Bible. Yes, the Bible is inspired by God. Yes, the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is the highest authority that we have, no question about it. But we're also called to interpret the Bible responsibly and faithfully. We do this in a lot of different ways. We talked about some of those ways last week. The most important among them is that we read everything in Scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we read and interpret everything through the lens of God's revelation to us in the person of Jesus. So there you have it. That's four weeks of sermons in about four minutes. If only all my sermons were this short, amen? Okay, like one person said amen, I appreciate that the rest of you didn't. Today's sermon's not going to be that short, I'm sorry. As we wrap up this whole conversation, we're going to look at just one more cliche. There's probably other cliches that we could look at, and maybe we'll do another series in the future, but just one more for this morning. It's up here. Let's say it together. Love the sinner, hate the sin. How many of you have heard this one before? Probably some of us have said it before. I know I have. We hear this cliche a lot these days in Christian circles as controversial issues are discussed. And I'll be honest, for the longest time, I believed this cliche to be true myself. As I said a second ago, I used to say it myself. Because this cliche seemed to give me the best of both worlds. I could love people, which of course I'm called to do as a Christian. I'm required to do, I'm expected to do, but also be tough on sin. Because sin is serious stuff, isn't it? Sin cannot be excused. It can't be made light of. It can't be trivialized. It needs to be called out. But how do you call out sin without appearing judgmental? That's the dilemma, isn't it? How do you call out sin without passing judgment on somebody? Ooh, you say you love the person who's committing the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. What could possibly be wrong with a statement like that? Well, this cliche might sound good in theory, but when we dig a little bit deeper, there are problems with it. One problem with this cliche, love the sin or hate the sin, has to do with our own self-deception, ironically a result of our sin. Simply put, it hardly ever works this way, folks. When trying to love people but hate sin, we'll focus more on the sin. We give ourselves way too much credit. As humans, we are a lot more judgmental than we want to admit or even realize. Johanna Reardon is an editor at Christianity Today. Uh, Christianity Today is a popular Christian magazine. Maybe some of you have read it. Well, Reardon shares that she and her husband at one point made a conscious decision that they were not going to watch rated R movies. Now, they were parents of children, 
And as parents, they, of course, made the choice that their children weren't going to watch rated R movies because their children weren't old enough, they weren't mature enough. But to be consistent, they decided that they weren't going to watch rated R movies either. Nobody in the house was going to watch movies that were rated R. Reardon says that she and her husband made this decision in good faith. They never regretted it. However, she also says that what happened over time, she didn't realize this at first, but she came to realize it later on, she began to pass judgment on other Christians who were watching rated R movies. She thought that these Christians weren't as committed to the cause of Jesus Christ as she was because they were watching movies that she and her husband had decided not to watch. This is what Johanna Reardon shares. Even as I write this, I realize how ridiculous it is to judge someone's relationship with God by what rating of movies he or she watches. But it was so subtle. Notice that word subtle. It was so subtle at the time. Since it was a sacrificial commitment for me, I instinctively evaluated other people's spiritual dedication when they talked about the latest movie they'd watched. As I made this decision, or I'm sorry, as I made this judgment, I never thought about my own sin or all the things that person was doing right. Instead, I focused on this one thing I thought they were doing wrong. You see, the simple truth is that as humans, again, because of our sin, we are really good at finding fault in people, even if fault isn't necessarily there, and then obsessing with that fault. Don't mishear me. There's nothing wrong with holding ourselves to a certain standard. If we don't want to watch rated R movies because of our commitment to Christ, that's fine. But when we start imposing that standard on other people, even though they haven't asked us to, we start imposing that standard on other people, we find how simple it is. We're not even aware of it at first, but how easy it is to pass judgment on that person, to think that that person is committed to their faith as we are. And so that's the first problem with this statement, this cliche, love the sin or hate the sin. It has to do with our own self-deception. It hardly ever works this way. When trying to love people but hate sin, we'll focus more on the sin. Another problem with this cliche, love the sin or hate the sin, is that it's not in the Bible. It's not. It's not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. So where does it come from? Well, this phrase seems to have originated with St. Augustine. Anybody ever heard of St. Augustine? Very influential Christian thinker, theologian. Uh, the oldest city in America, St. Augustine, which, by the way, it's always interesting. We call the theologian St. Augustine, but then we call the city St. Augustine. I've never understood that. But it's named after him. St. Augustine, apart from the writers of the Bible, nobody has had more influence on Christian thinking in the West than St. Augustine. He was a bishop in North Africa in the 4th and 5th centuries. Well, at one point, Augustine was writing a letter to a group of nuns, and in this letter, he encouraged these nuns to remain sexually abstinent. And then, along with this, he said to these nuns that they should have a love for humankind and a hatred for sin. Love for humankind, hatred for sin. However, as people have pointed out, based on the context of the letter, it's doubtful that Augustine was talking about having a hatred for other people's sin. Instead, he was talking about having a hatred for one's own son. But what's happened over the years those, is those words have been taken out of context, 
and they've become a safe way for us to point a finger at other people instead of pointing it back at ourselves. Which is pretty ironic because Jesus really didn't have very much tolerance when it came to obsessing over other people's sin. This is what Jesus says in the most famous sermon that he ever gave. What's the most famous sermon Jesus ever gave? Sermon on the Mount. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. While in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew 5, and it goes all the way to the end of Matthew 7. This is what Jesus says in the beginning part of Matthew 7 as a part of that sermon. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you? Get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye. Hypocrite! First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Whoever said that Jesus didn't have a sense of humor, of course Jesus had a sense of humor, but whoever said this never read this part of the Bible. This illustration that Jesus offers is intended to be funny. We should laugh as we're reading this. I mean, just imagine walking around. you got this big old log in your eye. And then you're busy trying to point out that little teeny tiny speck in somebody else's eye. Oh, Will, do you see that speck there? I can see it. Oh, it's so, it's so big. you got to get rid of it. It's silly, isn't it? It's ridiculous and absurd and ironic. But folks, that's precisely what we do. When we try to love the sinner but hate the sin, we become so focused on that person's sin, what we perceive that person to be doing wrong, we become blind to our own faults. It's really not that surprising. As humans, in general, we view ourselves more positively than we do others. And we give ourselves a whole lot more grace than we give other people. This has been scientifically proven. Uh, some years ago, a couple of researchers at the University of Toronto and at James Madison University in Virginia conducted a study. I love the name of the study. It's called Cognitive Sophistication Does Not Attenuate the Bias Blind Spot. Say that five times fast. That's quite a name, isn't it? Imagine coming across this in a Psychology 101 class. Cognitive sophistication does not attenuate the bias blind spot. Well, in a nutshell, we're not going to get into all the details, but in a nutshell, the study concluded we cut ourselves more slack than we cut other people. Writing about this study in The New Yorker, Jonah Lahare explains why we do this. Lahare claims that we all have bias blind spots. Can you say this with me? Bias blind spots. And because, or I'm sorry, we have biased blind spots because, he says, there's a mismatch between how we evaluate other people and then how we evaluate ourselves. This is what he writes. When considering the irrational choices of a stranger, for instance, we are forced to rely on how they behave, which makes sense because we don't know very much about this person other than their behavior. We see their biases from the outside, which allows us to glimpse their errors. However, when assessing our own bad choices, and we all make bad choices, we tend to engage in elaborate 
Not just regular introspection, but elaborate introspection. We study our motivations and we search for relevant reasons. We lament our mistakes to therapists and ruminate on the beliefs that led us astray. To give an example, if we're driving crazy through traffic, well, we have a good reason for that. We're running late to a meeting and we're leading the meeting. We have to be there. But if somebody else cuts us off in traffic, well, there's only one simple observable explanation. That person who cut me off is a jerk. That person is selfish. That person thinks that they're the center of this whole universe. Do you see the difference? We have biased blind spots. These biased blind spots prevent us and stop us from fully and properly evaluating other people. So here's a suggestion. Instead of getting caught up on what other people are doing, maybe instead let's focus on what we're doing. That's the real truth, isn't it? All of us are sinners. Jesus is the only sinless human who has ever lived. The rest of us are sinners. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only sin that Scripture seems to tell us that we can hate is our own. We read from, or I quoted Romans 3 a moment ago. This is what Paul says later in that book. Uh, this is from Romans 7, verse 15. He says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Paul isn't talking about hating what other people do, what so-and-so does, what he does or she does. He's talking about hating what he does, his own actions. You see, there's nothing wrong with hating sin, so long as the sin that we're hating is our own. Yeah, we should hate the things that we do and the things that we don't do that cause us to miss God's intended mark for our lives. That's really what sin is. The New Testament word for sin is amartia. It, it's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. If you have a bow and arrow and you shoot the arrow, you miss your intended mark. That's what sin is. We miss God's intended mark for our lives. So yeah, we should hate our sin. But hating other people's sin? Scripture doesn't seem to give us that kind of permission or license. Now, some people will rightly push back and say, hold on a second, time out. What about accountability? Doesn't the Bible speak about accountability? Yes, absolutely. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 1. He says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So yeah, the Bible talks about accountability, no question about it, not just here in Galatians, but in other passages. However, accountability and hating another's sin are two different things. The sort of accountability that Paul writes about here in Galatians 6 takes place where? Well, it takes place in Christian community with people who are already Christian. What does Paul say? If another believer. So this person is already a Christian, and this person is also giving us permission to hold them accountable. Accountability is done with the utmost humility. 
and integrity. Recognizing that we're not perfect. We have faults. We have sin. We have blind spots. And accountability happens in the context of a relationship and a friendship. In my experience, whenever we throw out that cliche, love the sin or hate the sin, we don't have a relationship with the people we're talking about. We don't know them in a personal way. We don't know their story. We don't know their struggles. All we see them as is the summation of what we believe they've done wrong. There's an example of this in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. This is not Simon Peter, the disciple. It's another person named Simon who's a Pharisee. And while Jesus is reclining at the table, all of a sudden this woman, who's considered to be sinful and immoral, she crashes the party. Now we assume that she was most likely a prostitute because back then there were fewer opportunities for women to be called immoral. Uh, Women were not able to embezzle money. They weren't able to serve as tax collectors, and tax collectors, of course, had a bad reputation. So typically back then, if a woman was called immoral or sinful, it meant that she was a prostitute. So presumably, the town prostitute comes, crashes this party. Where does she go? She sits at Jesus' feet. And she's so overcome with emotion to be in the presence of Jesus, this man who is so full of grace, that she cries and she cries and she cries and she cries. And her tears get Jesus' feet all wet. So she lets down her hair. And she begins to dry his feet with her hair. And she kisses his feet. And she has this jar of perfume. She breaks the jar and she pours the perfume on his feet. Very intimate. Very powerful. Very filled with emotion, this whole scene. Well, this just enrages Simon the Pharisee. This is what happens next. Luke chapter 7, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him, that would be Jesus, saw this, that is this whole scene between Jesus and this woman, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, in other words, if this man were from God, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a what? She's a sinner. At this point, Jesus tells a parable. And then after he tells this parable, he follows it up with this question. This is uh, Luke 7, verse 44. Then Jesus, or he, turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? That's a strange question. This woman is right in front of him. She's just a few feet away. But he doesn't see her. I mean, yeah, he physically sees her. He's really upset that she's in his house and that she's where she is at Jesus' feet. But he doesn't really see her. Because of his own self-righteousness, because of his own hypocrisy, because of his biased blind spots, whatever you want to call it, because of his hatred of her sin, the kind of person that he believes she is, he doesn't see her as a fellow child of God, somebody in desperate need of grace. He only sees her as the summation 
of what he perceives to be her faults. She's just a sinner. Make no mistake about it, Jesus was not soft on sin. I want to make that crystal clear. Jesus was not soft on sin. He came to save us from sin. But it's interesting, in the Gospels, whenever Jesus most often called out sin, it was the sin of the religious people who thought that they were better than everybody else. They thought that they were morally superior than everybody else, who through their actions were keeping people from God, which is why Jesus sometimes called them hypocrites or whitewashed tombs. But Jesus had great compassion and mercy toward those like this woman who were spiritually hungry. Think about all the stories that show this. Remember Zacchaeus? In Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus had cheated everybody out of their money in Jericho. Jesus went to his home. He went to be the guest of a sinner, as the people said. Or do you remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4, who was an outcast in her community? Jesus offered to her living water. Or remember the man who was beside Jesus on the cross in Luke chapter 23, a convicted criminal condemned to death for his crimes, Jesus said to that man, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus loved all these people whom the religious folks considered to be great sinners. And from that love, and from that grace, and from that space, he gave them the chance to experience the fullness of life in God. That's what you and I are called to do. We are called to love people without condition, without qualifying it, without saying, well, I love you, but I got to tell you this, I hate what you do. I hate your sin. Again, it doesn't mean that there isn't accountability for those in Christian community. Yes, we've already established that. It doesn't mean that we don't call out bad behavior or acts of injustice or abuse and we just turn a blind eye. No. But it does mean that we don't see people primarily as their sin. Jesus never told us to love people as sinners. He told us to love people as neighbors. Jesus labeled this the greatest commandment. This is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, in other words, of all the Old Testament commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Did Jesus say, love your sinner as yourself? He said, love your neighbor. Who's our neighbor? Who's our neighbor? Say it louder. Everybody. Especially those who have been rejected. Especially those who have been excluded. Especially those whom everybody else has written off. These are the people, regardless of who they are, that we're called to go to and reach and love as Jesus loves. Back in the mid-1990s, Bill Clinton was our president. And President Clinton was caught up in the whole scandal involving Monica Lewinsky. Monica Lewinsky, as we all remember, she was a White House intern with whom the president had an inappropriate relationship. 
even though he was married, and even though he was the president, and she was an intern, it was an abuse of his office. We can all agree with that, regardless of our politics. Well, the president, as we also all know, was not truthful about the relationship. And so when he was backed into a corner and then eventually became more truthful, he was charged with perjury and the obstruction of justice and ended up being impeached by the House of Representatives, left a permanent mark on his presidency. As this whole thing was going on, Time Magazine was hosting a banquet in Washington, D.C., in which the president spoke. Well, the late Billy Graham, the great evangelist, he was invited to attend this banquet, and he brought his daughter Gigi with him, and they sat at the same table as President Clinton and First Lady Hillary Clinton. As we would expect, Billy Graham was nothing but kind and polite and gracious and loving and compassionate toward the president. And then when the banquet was over, he and Gigi were driving back to the hotel and they were just talking about the whole evening and what was going on in our country. That's when Billy Graham made this comment to Gigi. He said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. It's my job to love. That's what Billy Graham said. That's our job, to love. Jesus never said that we would be known for our hatred of sin. Where did Jesus ever say that? He did say, on the other hand, we would be known for our love. I don't know about you, but when it comes to hating sin, I've got enough of my own sin to deal with. I've got lots of my own sin to deal with. I don't have time to hate anybody else's sin. I do have time to love them, to build a relationship with them, to get to know them as people, and share Jesus with them. Far too often, we Christians are known for what we hate, or what we're against, or what we're opposed to. Just ask your non-Christian friends, they'll say this. By grace, let's strive instead to be known, as Jesus said, for how we love. This way, the whole world might come to know and believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.